0: This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church, located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. If you have your Bibles, would you open them, please, to uh, Luke chapter 1. And while you're doing that, I want to make several announcements here. First of all, if you're visiting with us, welcome. Uh, whether you're visiting here or online, if you would like to take a next step, get connected to our church, use the Connect card to do that. We've got paper cards in the back of the room. You can access it through the website and the app as well. And uh, we want to be helpful to you. Additionally, if you are new, we're to the church next Sunday. We've got our Discover Alliance luncheon following the 1045 service. Uh, You'll meet some of the staff, hear a little bit about our vision and values. We'll feed you, we'll feed your kids. Come on out for that. Let us know you're coming, register, and uh, we'll take care of you. Uh, Christmas Eve is coming up. I want you know how we're doing that. Christmas Eve is typically our highest attended services throughout the course of the year. And uh, while COVID may naturally take care of mitigating some of the overcrowding, we're not going to leave that to chance. So here's how we're doing it this year. Service times are 1 o'clock, 2.30 and 4 Okay, 1 o'clock, 2.30, and 4. The 1 p.m. service is going to be reserved for high-risk individuals only. You know who you are. 1 o'clock, high-risk individuals only. We're, we're capping the attendance at 25% uh, capacity in the room. The 2.30 and the 4 for anybody, we're capping that at 50% capacity. And we do have child care at those two services for kids 4 and under. Now, in order for the caps to work, you've got to register. We're asking you to register online. Easy to do it, and you can get to it from the homepage. Uh, just there, There's no charge. We're not charging you for this. It's free. Um, go online, click on the registration button Christmas Eve, and just tell us how many seats you need in this room. I don't need to know how many kids, four and under, you're going to have in the nursery. The capacity limits r- relate to this room only. So you go online, you register how many seats you need, and uh, we'll, be able to, uh, we'll be able to take care of that. All services will be live streamed. Okay, so still live streaming. And then registration opens today at 1 p.m. for this. Okay, 1 o'clock. Next, uh, giving is, uh, church finances can be exhibit A with the cliche out of sight, out of mind, particularly in a year like this one where we've got about half of our folks still online half here i want to make sure where you know that you know where we stand as we head into december um it's up there one thing that's not in there but i I want to let you know about our benevolence fund has been doing very well this year your generosity that is appreciated we've been able to help people through it we're positioned to help people uh in in the future here as we continue to muddle our way through this uh period of time but that's very healthy um uh, the, the general fund, which is the, the missions and uh, excuse me, the ministry and operations fund, the main fund of the church, and the missions fund, they're lagging behind a bit. Uh, so December is a great time to make that up. And a radical generosity is an effective means of making progress as disciples of Christ. So keep that in mind as we go through this month. Now, in spite of all of that, there is no recession in the kingdom of God, and gospel ministry has not been put on pause. Uh, over the course of this morning, as you heard, we are baptizing seven individuals who have been purchased with the blood of Christ. At Thanksgiving Eve, you heard stories of how God is using our church to um, do meaningful ministry, profound ministry in the lives of people in our church. And additionally, both through our in-person and our online services, we're continuing to serve between eight and 900 people uh, on a Sunday morning. So we're, we're not taking our foot off the gas. We are continuing full steam ahead because the stakes are high. The stakes are heaven and hell. We don't stop. Uh, We're going to keep going. Uh, So keep that in mind. And lastly, I want to give you an update on our Thanksgiving Eve offering. You recall that we took a special offering for the Raven School in uh, Zambia in Africa. And thanks to your generosity, you gave more than uh, $13,700. So here's what that means. Here's what that means. Every kid you see pictured up there has been scholarshiped. Not just for a semester, but for a year, and then some, and then some. So thank you for that. As soon as I found out, I let uh, Bruce Chidambala, who's the director of the school, I let him know that, and he replied within a half hour, (laughs) all the way over in Africa. I sent him an email, he replies within a half hour, a very long email, okay? I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I I thought you'd want to hear this from him. Here's what he said. Pastor Brian, a big thank you to you and your wonderful community of believers at Alliance Bible Church for yet again such an incredible gesture of generosity. Thank you on my behalf and on behalf of every child and every household that will be touched by the blessings of this gift. It makes it much easier for us, my team and I, to go back to each poor household with a child in need of a scholarship and say to them, Merry Christmas. The Lord's favor is upon you. Your child has a place in school for yet another year. Thanks to the generosity of God's community at a church far, far away from our own nation. He says that gift from far, far away part plays well into the message of Christmas. A message that is otherwise tough to sell here with so much neediness. But thanks to Alliance Bible Church, yet again, it's now lots easier to tell this Christmas. Thank you, Bruce. So thank you. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing happening there. Let's pray, and um, we'll get into our, our passage this morning. God, we thank you for uh, the way in which you can use churches from far-off lands to serve the needs of those um, who... Otherwise, uh, Lord, may not get the help they need. We're grateful for your providential arranging of our relationship and pray that you would uh, continue to foster that. God, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for this time of year. And I pray that even though we have gone through many, many Christmases, um, that you would impress upon our hearts afresh the significance of this time of year. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Christmas is a very musical time of the year. I don't know if you uh, put together your Christmas song list, playlist. You put together your, your playlist. I got one in my car. I got one, well, I got one on my phone, which kind of goes everywhere with me, plays it uh, in the living room. We're baking in the kitchen or we're putting up decorations. I'm sure you've got your, your playlist picked out as well. I just I have a question for you. Your favorite non-sacred Christmas songs. Okay, I'll give you multiple choice. Okay, they're on the screen. Here you go. What's your favorite? Look at it carefully. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. White Christmas. Holly Jolly Christmas. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Okay, how many of you, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Favorite of the four up there. Let me see them. Hit it up. Okay. How about White Christmas? Lots of White Christmases. Okay. Holly Jolly. <laughs> yeah. We're seeing the, I asked the staff this on Monday. We're seeing kind of the same breakdown happen here. Uh, no Burl Ives fans here. Come on. Uh, have yourself a merry little Christmas. Yeah. Okay. Which version? <laughs> which version? I, I, Garland? Judy Garland. I have a feeling old blue eyes is going to come out here at some point. Chairman of the board. Yeah. Um, Christmas is a very musical time of the year. And in fact, ironically, Christmas was a very poetic time of Jesus' life. Uh, Lots of songs surround his birth. Four, in fact, surround his birth. The song of Mary, the song of the angels, the song of Simeon. We also have the song of Zechariah in relationship to John the Baptist. We're going to be looking at th- these three songs the Song of Mary, Song of the Angel, Song of Simeon in the Sundays to come, and we're going to see what they teach us about this cherished time of the year. So let's dive in. Let's look at Mary's song, the Magnificat, Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 46. Let me read. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary is a lot of things, but one thing for sure she is, is a worshiper. Mary is a worshiper. We're going to look at her song and what it teaches us about the heart of a worshiper. Three aspects we'll see in her song to the heart of a worshiper. heart of a worshiper is steeped in scripture, overjoyed in the act of glorifying God, and captivated with the nature of the gift. heart of a worshiper is, first of all, steeped in scripture. Look at the the text with me. Notice, Notice how often Mary refers to God and what he's done in the song. Notice that. Look at all the the he has statements in there. You see them all? He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are rich and proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has filled the hungry with good things. And on and on it goes. He has done this. He has done that. He has. He has. He has. God is the main character of her song. And it's remarkable how much she has to say about what God has done. Where is all this coming from? Where is it all coming from? Well, she's quoting various Old Testament texts. In fact, her whole song is basically a mosaic of Old Testament scriptures. Mary is so steeped in scripture that when she breaks out in praise, the words that come naturally to her are the words of scripture. That is remarkable for a teenager. The heart of a worshiper is not inwardly oriented. What I mean by that is the heart of a worshiper is not preoccupied primarily with questions like, What have I done? How do I feel? What do I think? How am I doing? The heart of a worshiper is not oriented inwardly, but rather the heart of a worshiper is oriented to God. And you get oriented to God by being steeped in scripture. Listen, worship won't make any sense to you unless you're steeped in scripture. It's not gonna make any sense to you unless you're steeped in scripture. Why? Because the Bible portrays God as magnificent and the natural outworking of seeing God's magnificence is worship. You know this intuitively. What do you do when you see a sunset over an ocean for the first time or the hundredth time? You take it in. You say, this is amazing. What do you do when you see for the first time or the hundredth time a snow-capped mountain kissing the sky? You say, wow, wow. What do I do when I get to play a first-rate, beautifully manicured and meticulously designed golf course for the first time? (laughs) You drink in the amazement. This is the language and the category of worship. Now, I'm not an outdoorsy type of guy, but if I recall correctly, fire needs three things heat, fuel, and oxygen. In order for there to be fire, you've got to have these three things. Well, in order for the fires of worship to ignite, one needs to be steeped in Scripture you remove that, it's like starting a fire without oxygen. The more you're steeped in scripture, the greater the likelihood you'll be able to take a step back, see the magnificence of God, and say, wow, that's amazing. And the moment you've done that, you've worshipped. You've worshipped. So here's a question. How many he... Hases? Could you list? Mary got us started. She does pretty well. How many he hases? Could you list? The heart of a worshiper seated in Scripture. Second, the heart of a worshiper is overjoyed in the act of glorifying God. Mary says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Songs are poetry. In the case of biblical poetry, we have this thing called parallelism, where one line of poetry defines or explains the other line. So notice, if you will, Mary both glorifying the Lord and rejoicing in God. These are not separate. Ideas. They're inextricably linked. They're married to each other. So for Mary to glorify the Lord is the means of finding joy in the Lord. She delights to glorify the Lord. To glorify the Lord brings her great joy. The heart of a worshiper is overjoyed in the act of glorifying God. Are you overjoyed in the act of glorifying God. Does glorifying God bring you inexpressible joy? Now, I understand at this point that we start to glaze over a little bit because when we hear this phrase, glorify God, glorify God, which we often hear in Christian circles, it can come across to us as a bit Christianese. So I want to try to remove some of the ambiguity to it and make it clear. What do we mean by that? Are you glorifying the Lord with your job? Are you glorifying the Lord in uh, in this endeavor you're about to pursue? What do we mean by that? The word glory means weight. We've talked about this before. The word glory means heavy If God is glorious, it doesn't mean he's overweight. It means he's consequential, important, significant, first place, first priority. Now, we don't add glory to God. We don't add glory to God. We don't take glory from God. We don't make him more important or less important. We don't make him more consequential or less consequential. But we can make much of the importance and significance of God. And when we make much of the importance and significance of God, we glorify him. When we think about God as being a pretty big deal, we glorify God. When we talk about God as being a big deal, we glorify Him. When we act as if God is a big, big deal, we glorify Him. How do we do this? How do we make much of God? How do we focus the attention of ourselves and others onto the significance of God? How do we do that? Maybe a bunch of examples. Street level. We make much of God when we do what Mary did. Let's start there. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has filled the hungry with good things. In other words, we, we make much of God when our thoughts go to all the He hases we can think of. We we make much of God when we search the scriptures, looking for all the He hases that we can find. We make much of God when we revel in what we discover there. We make much of God when we're captivated with the nature of the gift He's given us in a Savior, Jesus Christ. You ever just take time to think about Jesus and marvel? We make much of God when we fully engage in listening and understanding to the preaching of his word. When you elbow the person next to you who's talking about nothing and say, hey, be quiet, this is important. We glorify God. We make much of God when we raise our voices together in song. We make much of God when we let our money flow freely to the things that God values most. A good way to think about this is to ask the question, if God was in charge of my budget and bank accounts, where would he put the money? We make much of God when we turn to him in prayer, frequently acknowledging our dependence on him for every breath and every step we take. We make much of God when we tell other people how much He means to us and how much He's done for us. That is perfect lobby conversation. Let me tell you what God has done in my life this past week. Let me tell you about what God is doing in my mind and my heart. You glorify God. We make much of God when we mimic His work of creation By pursuing excellence and integrity in our vocations. We make much of God when we treasure every moment we get communing with him through reading the scriptures. The heart of a worshiper finds joy in all those things. Based on that, would you say you have a worshiper's heart? It's not just a matter of doing these things, it's also a matter of finding joy in doing these things. C.S. Lewis summed it up well. When he said, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy. Because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is to come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch. To hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. Your enjoyment of God isn't complete until you've glorified him. Third, the heart of a worshiper is captivated with the nature of the gift. Right out of the gate in the first verse of her song, Mary identifies the nature of the gift when she addresses God as my savior. My savior. Now this might seem obvious, But there are subtle ways in which we drift from this foundational and primary understanding of Savior. Let me mention a few. Rather than seeing Jesus as Savior, we can see him instead as therapist. And when Jesus is primarily therapist, we turn to him in order to find happiness and fulfillment. We turn to him to fill our emptiness. We turn to Jesus to make us feel better. We turn to him to help us reach our full potential. Or rather than seeing Jesus as savior, we can see him primarily as moral example. Jesus is, is, is when he's primarily moral example, we turn to him in order to emulate his behavior. He becomes the paradigm we try to follow in pursuit of our own self-improvement. We look, to provide, we look to him to provide us with, with moral structure. Or rather than seeing Jesus as savior, we can see him as activist. And when Jesus is primarily activist, we turn to him as a model for political, social, cultural transformation in order to build a more just society. And when Jesus is primarily activist, the church ends up finding its greatest unity around political and social projects. Now, there's a sense in which Jesus is and does all of this, but the scriptures never announce him this way. They don't present him this way. The primary role of Jesus in the heart of a worshiper and in Mary's song is Savior. The heart of a worshiper approaches him this way. So if the heart of a worshiper sees Jesus as primarily Savior, this also says something about how a worshiper sees him or herself, does it not? If Jesus is primarily Savior, that means what about me? I need saving. I need a rescue. I need a deliverance. But from what? We don't need to look outside the Christmas story to find the answer to that question. Let's turn to Matthew's account of the Christmas story. An angel appears to Joseph and says, Mary will give birth to a son. You're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So, how does the heart of a worshiper see oneself? How does the heart of a worshiper see oneself as a sinner in need of a Savior? The heart of a worshiper is captivated with Jesus as Savior. Let me tell you something this is incredibly freeing. It's incredibly freeing because if Jesus is therapist, there's still a tremendous amount of pressure for you to be a good patient. There's still a tremendous amount of pressure on you to take the necessary steps to become happier and more fulfilled. There's still a weight placed on your shoulders. and There's a sense in which Jesus then becomes the means to the ultimate good, which is happiness. As though happiness finds its terminus in something other than Jesus. If Jesus is moral example, there's still a tremendous amount of pressure on you to be a good student hey, pay attention, do this, do this, do this, don't do that, to listen to everything he's saying and then go out there and emulate him. <laughs> Have you read the life of Jesus? Good luck with that. If Jesus is activist, there's still a tremendous amount of pressure on you to be a good activist as well. But if Jesus is Savior, there's no pressure on you. May I say that again? If Jesus is Savior, there's no pressure on you. None. Why? <laughs> the Scriptures. Don't convey to us we're injured and need treatment. The scriptures convey to us we're dead and need resurrecting. There isn't a lot of pressure placed on dead people because the expectations are pretty low. Jesus did not come primarily to give you a boost in getting your act together. He came to raise you from the dead. Embracing Jesus as Savior is the most freeing thing you'll ever experience. And it's the most exhilarating, electrifying, and invigorating thing you'll ever experience. In preparation for this message, I began researching and reading firsthand accounts provided by plane crash survivors. I realize that sounds odd, but hang with me here. These are fascinating stories. I didn't realize how many of them there were. <laughs> and while the details differ, there are threads of similarity among them all. They, they all mention sheer and utter horror of the threat they faced and the powerlessness to do anything about it. As one person said, a plane crash is not a manageable crisis. They all mention gratitude to be alive. They're all confronted with the question, why me? Why did I survive? And for all of them, their fundamental identity revolves around surviving a plane crash. Imagine yourself in a crisis in this world. Captive to a gunman frozen 10 hours in a bank of snow, streaking to earth in a crashing jet. Whatever crisis you can imagine yourself in. I tell you, on the authority of God's word, your condition right now, at this moment, is more critical and more urgent and more threatening Without a Savior, than anything you can imagine. The heart of a worshiper gets this. The heart of a worshiper is transfixed, riveted, captivated by the nature of the gift Jesus, Savior. Let's pray. Jesus, in the midst of the noise of music and activity and shopping and gatherings and more, I pray we would again experience the desperate, hopeless, despairing situation we are in apart from you. Our condition is of such a degree that only a miracle can spare us from our demise. And a miracle, Jesus, is what you are. That you would leave your throne in heaven behind, enter into our world of corruption and sin, and live and die in our place, all to rescue badly marred people like us, is a gift too marvelous for words. Jesus, I pray for those who have yet to receive you as Savior. I pray that you would bring them to their knees, seeing for the first time their true condition, and throwing themselves at your feet, pleading for mercy. And Jesus, I pray that our hearts would soar in worship, just like we see happening in Mary, that our hearts would soar in worship and adoration and devotion as we ponder what it means for you to be Savior. We do that now for your glory alone. Amen.